Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bible with you, please go ahead and open it to Philippians chapter 3. It is a real blessing to be able to proclaim God's word to you this morning. And I'm certainly all the more pleased to have people in the room as well. We're continuing our series in Philippians, To Live is Christ. And once again, we have an amazing passage to cover, don't we? I shared with Tony and a few others this week uh, just how inadequate I feel in covering this passage. I think that the depth and the beauty of it has left me lost for words on more than one occasion in preparing. But God is good. And his promise to us is that when we are weak, then we are strong. As we lean on Christ and rest in his grace working within us. So let's read his word together. And then I'll pray that his spirit would help us this morning. Philippians chapter 3 and from verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you that you are with us here this morning. Thank you that it is your word that we hear from this morning and not my own. I pray, Father, that your spirit would help us to receive what it is that you have for us. Lord, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly and that we would love him more deeply as we walk out of here this morning. Please give me grace to proclaim your word faithfully and boldly to your people that their hearts may be stirred with zeal and passion for, your, for the Lord, and that we may walk in his ways together. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you can recall a moment in your life where you were so sure and so confident about something, only for you to realize that your confidence was totally misplaced. I have been so confident that there really no, were no wipes left in the nappy bag, only for Stacy to prove me wrong. I have been so confident that Ezra would be fine 
to play in the car while I was mowing the front lawn, only to be calling out the RAC to come and remove the safety pin he had jammed in the ignition. I have been so confident that the patio roof would hold me as I walked across it, only not to be looking down, causing me to fall through the clear sheet that you're not supposed to walk on. When we are right about what we have placed our confidence in, how good is it? Peace and joy abound. But what about when we are wrong? Best case, nobody finds out, right? But usually there's shame and frustration and embarrassment. Our misplaced confidence really can cost us. Our passage today causes us to ask this question when it comes to our right standing before God. Where is your confidence? When you stand before the throne of God on Judgment Day, will whatever you are confident in remain true? Will it remain steadfast and sure? Or will it fall out from under you like a clear patio sheet? In this passage, Paul writes to the Philippians to ensure their confidence is in the right place. Paul has also written to the Philippians for their joy, And this is a theme that we see that comes up over and over again in this letter, doesn't it? And we see here it again in today's passage. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul's command to us is that we rejoice in the Lord. He says it is no trouble for him to keep telling them to and it is safe for us. But in what way is it safe? It is so that our joy in Christ will protect us from the dangers that threaten to rob our confidence. Exulting in the Lord keeps him in the rightful position as Lord over our lives. And Paul writes to the Philippians and to us to show us where our joyful confidence ought to be in Christ and how that strengthens our ability to rejoice in the Lord. But first, Paul warns us to look out for the dogs, the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. And he has one particular group of people in mind, the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, but demanded in Christ plus circumcision. God had given the sign of circumcision to Abraham in Genesis 17 as a sign of the covenant he had made with him. This was further established in the law given to Moses, and it was the clearest sign that you were indeed one of God's people. If you were not circumcised under the old covenant, you were not part of God's people. Paul speaks so strongly against these false teachers because it insists that Christ's work is not sufficient. He knows that this false gospel will rob us of our confidence in the finished work of Christ and therefore will rob our joy. And sadly, we continue to see this preaching prevalent in churches today, don't we? There are churches that preach that it must be Jesus plus the Mass, Jesus plus speaking in tongues, Jesus plus tithing, Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus the victorious life. A lot of the time, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, namely the good news of the righteous life that he lived, 
his death that he died for the sins of his people, his victory over sin and death being raised from the dead, and his being seated at the right hand of the Father as Lord of all is not even preached, but rather these add-ons are made most important. There are so many organisations today that operate in the name of Jesus, but slander his name by diminishing the worth and effectiveness of his sinless life and sinner's death. This so-called gospel of Jesus plus fill-in-the-blank is no gospel at all. It robs Christ of his glory and it robs anyone who embraces it of confidence and joy in Christ. So look out, church. Paul contrasts the false teaching of these Judaizers with the powerful reality of this salvation that we have in Jesus in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. As we know, circumcision was the sign of the old covenant affirming that you were indeed one of God's people. What the Judaizers refused to see, but what Paul is so gloriously showing us, is that circumcision was always an act of faith, pointing Israel to the fulfillment of God's salvation for them. New hearts. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, it says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And also in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. By saying that we are the circumcision, Paul is reminding the Philippians and us of the glorious truth that we collectively belong to Christ because we have died to sin, we have been born again, we've been given new hearts. This is incredible, isn't it? What glorious reason to rejoice in the Lord. This is why we can worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, because he has circumcised our hearts. He's cut away the dead flesh that has enslaved us to a life of sin and separation from the glory of God. These are the marks of the true Christian. And this is why we have to put no confidence in the flesh. This is why our confidence is in Christ. But before showing us what it looks like to put no confidence in the flesh, Paul entertains the idea that we could have righteousness any other way, namely by our own good works or by our obedience to the law. In doing this, he will criticize the Judaizers, but also those of us who are still prone to putting our confidence in what we do rather than what Christ has already done. He writes in verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's religious resume looks better than anyone else's ever could. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Now, we don't have time just to consider how important each of these are to a first century Jew, but I think the last word sums it up perfectly. Blameless. This was Paul's claim, that he was blameless before God. Surely none of us here would have that to say about ourselves, right? But I do think that we can come up with reasons to excuse our sinful state before God and try to justify ourselves before him. What are some of these ways that we might try to justify ourselves before God? Well, my parents were Christian. I go to church. I don't swear and I definitely don't get drunk. I tithe, give lots of money. I've been baptised, so you know. maybe this is the most common one. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Church, the truth is that none of these things can save you. Too easily we believe the lie that we have to be a good person to be right before God. There is some truth in that though, isn't there? God is holy and righteous and he will tolerate no evil in his presence. But how do we get there? How on earth can we have a right standing before God when we fall so short every day. Certainly not by our own effort or performance, right? Whereas Romans 2 says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So what's Paul's logic here? Why does he say that he has reason for confidence in the flesh? I think it's safe to say that he is using it ironically, right? He is showing us that if we think we can justify ourselves, he has all the more reason to think that. Which is why it's so important for us when he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's counted it all as loss. Every reason that he had to consider himself right before God, he's counted it all loss because of the worth and merit of Christ. Paul is better than you, but he pales in comparison to Christ. We see the idea of an accounting spreadsheet or ledger here, don't we? Before meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul had all of these things on the gain side of the column. He was convinced that this balanced the spreadsheet and made himself right with God. But when his eyes were opened to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, everything changed. And now his ledger looks like this. Sin and everything else as loss. Christ is gain. Everything as loss for the sake, the merit, the worth of Christ. Why? What is at the heart of this glorious reality? What is driving Paul to be able to throw away that which he considered himself to be righteous? Take a closer look at verse 9 with me. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
you can see it is through faith alone that we receive this righteousness from God. It has been imputed to us. That is, we have received this righteousness from God and it is counted to us as if it were our own. This is the very righteousness of God that has been given to us through faith in Christ. And not just in some abstract way, but there's three little words at the beginning of verse 9 that show us how this could be. Can you see them? Found in him. The scriptures teaches us of this incredible reality of our union with Christ. That by faith we have been united to him. And because we are found in him, his righteousness has been made our very own. God sees you as he sees Christ. Perfect, holy and righteous. This means that if you're in Christ... You are no more righteous yesterday than you are today. And you will be no more righteous tomorrow or next week or in eternity than you are right now. This is staggering. This means that you don't need to serve in church driven by guilt, feeling like you owe something to God. This means that you don't need to raise perfect children and you're not controlled by their successes or failures. This means that you don't need to pretend that everything's okay and present yourself to others like you have it all together. This means that on Judgment Day, you can have confidence before your Father in Heaven, knowing that He will not hold anything against you because Christ has already paid for it, has given you His very own righteousness. Your actions do not define you, church. Christ does. His righteousness does. The hymn, Thy works not mine, O Christ, says it most beautifully. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails, save that which is of thee. Thy works not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done, and they bid my fear depart. This is the glorious reality of the gospel. This is the firm foundation that Paul is giving for us to be able to rejoice in the Lord. And this is why Paul can count everything else as loss. In verses 7 and 8, four times Paul echoes this idea of counting what he had as loss because of the merit and worth of Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul's not devaluing creation here, but rather he is magnifying the value of Christ and making him supremely more valuable than anything else. In contrast, everything else is rubbish. This could mean more literally dung, but the concept that Paul is getting at is useless and undesirable material. Useless and undesirable. Is that what your own righteousness is to you now? Because it certainly was for Paul, and he is commanding us to think the same. Holding on to it doesn't make any sense anymore, does it? 
It would be like my three-year-old Ezra holding so tightly onto his 20-cent coin and treasuring it more than he would the billions of dollars that his father has deposited into, into his bank account. That is a completely hypothetical illustration, by the way. One of the greatest tensions in a Christian's life is the now but not yetness of our salvation, isn't it? God's word declares that through faith we are united to Christ and have been made righteous, but it doesn't always feel that way, does it? And that's why we can continue to wrestle with our sinful pride and putting our hope in our own righteousness. But notice the present tense in which Paul is saying these things. He has counted it as loss in verse 7, so there is a moment of repentance that we all must make. But in verse 8, he also says, I count everything as loss. And again later on, and count them as rubbish. Why does he do this? Why must we make the continued effort to count it as loss? Why must we continue to count it all loss, to repent from our efforts to be righteous before God, and place our faith in Christ, trusting him for his righteousness on this continued basis. It is so that we would know him. Let's look again at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing him. You see, the goal, the purpose of counting everything else as loss and receiving this righteousness from God is so that we might know Christ. This knowing, though, is not simply a reading about him and knowing stories about who he was and what he did, It is not knowing all the right theology and all the right things to believe. Jonathan Edwards, a great American preacher in the 18th century, describes this as an experiential knowing. The image that he uses is like knowing what honey tastes like. You simply cannot know what honey tastes like by reading about it, can you? You have to taste it. What does Psalm 34 say? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's an experiential knowing of Christ that is an essential part of the Christian life. Knowing him surpasses anything else that this world has to offer. He is more satisfying, more beautiful, more glorious. And this is what putting no confidence in the flesh looks like. Fully trusting in Christ by treasuring him above all else. So how can we do this? In verse 10, Paul equates knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings with knowing Christ. Have a look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. What Paul is saying here is that these are the means by which we know him. So how? How do we know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in his suffering? Well, first, let's consider the power of his resurrection. What's Paul talking about here? 
In Romans 6, he says this, For we have been united with him in a death like his. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, uh, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In our union with Christ, if we have died with him, then we now also have life in him. In fact, we have his very spirit at work inside of us, don't we? So we consider ourselves dead to sin. And we experience Christ and we know him in the power of this resurrection that is at work within us as we battle our sin. As we fight our pride and lusts and anger and laziness, we rely on Christ. As we treasure Christ as more valuable than anything else, then the things of this world grow strangely dim. As we place our confidence in the righteousness of Christ, we know him and experience him in the daily fight against sin. Secondly, Paul says that we know Christ as we share in his sufferings. The clearest place that we can see this, I think, is in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But does this mean we seek out suffering? Of course not. So what does it look like? Just a couple of weeks ago, Tony unpacked that for us, didn't he? In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, it shows us what it means to pick up our cross and follow Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mind among yourselves. So we humble ourselves, we pick up our cross, and we serve others, even to the point of death. And it is in this denying and dying that we will know Christ. Some of you know that deeply, don't you? In those most challenging moments in life where you just don't know how you will have the strength to keep going, Christ is there. And you know him. You experience him most deeply in those moments as you share in his sufferings. And in the process, Paul says that we are becoming him in his death. Church, Let us be confident in Christ and count everything as loss so that we might know him and know him by sharing in the power of his resurrection and in his sufferings. And ultimately, so that we might know him forever. Paul concludes for us saying, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul so treasures and values Christ that he would count everything as loss and live in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings so that he might see and taste and know Christ and enjoy him forever and ever. Church, this righteousness from God is not simply just a golden ticket to heaven. It's been given to us so that we might know God and enjoy him forever. Do you see the work of Christ for us and how that proves his worth to us? Do you see that we are free to live righteous lives because we are already righteous? Does this produce the joy of the Lord in you as you dwell on these truths? Does your confidence in Christ and in his righteousness produce this fruit in your life? Paul's prayer for the Philippians in chapter 1 is for this exact thing. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these glorious truths that we have heard from you this morning. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we deserve. Thank you that we can have great confidence knowing that we are considered righteous in him. Would you please help us to love him and treasure him more deeply this week? Please help us to know him more and more as we fight our sin and pick up our crosses. Please help us to repent from our misplaced confidence in our own works and by faith to walk in Christ's righteousness that is our own. Thank you, Father. It is for your glory and for our good that we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.